Whatever you tell me. I don't want to use the word mistake, John, because if I do, it gets taken out of the context that you're asking me the question on. Elon wants to uh, bring back to Twitter is a reasonable exchange of ideas. Elon Musk has said now that he's going to start a content moderation board. That was one good sign. Well, it's Halloween and it's uh, Glob Culture on Halloween. Um, I'm John Foghorts in New York. the urge to say, Happy Halloween, everybody. Whoopee, like Paul Lynn and the... But it's still available. Happy Halloween. Yeah, yeah, all right, right. Yeah, and that's, of course, Rob Long. I'm John Podorts in New York, and this is Rob Long in New York. We are sadly not being joined today by Jonah Goldberg, because you may know by now that Jonah's uh, mother, Lucianne, uh, one of my uh, closest friends for 40 years, passed away uh, at the end of last week, and Jonah is dealing with that. I do commend to you uh, the podcast that he recorded for his remnant, uh, which mm. is a kind of hour long, uh, memory of what it was like to grow up as Lucianne's son, what she was like, what their family was like. It's uh, beautiful and a little wrenching. And, and I uh, will say to also find uh, the John Pedorts lovely, um, uh, memory of her memor- memoriam of her in uh, commentary. It was lovely. Um, yeah, and I used so- to see her every year at the same, the same Christmas party every year. And every year she was sitting in the corner holding court, and yes. telling jokes and being um, sort of uh, it, it, somehow also in the far corner of a party being the life of the party, which is not an easy thing to do, but she managed you, to do it. You know, a lot of people have said about Lucienne, I didn't really say it in my 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 memorialization of her, but but people, you know, in texts to me and emails to me have said, like, you know, we're not going to see, you know, she's like a type we're not going to see again. And uh you know, I call her uh, like a broad. Like she was a broad, a grand old broad. That's yeah. that's yeah. that's what she was. And I, I'm interested by this because a lot of this podcast, you know, like is is sort of choked with a certain type of nostalgia. You know, our our <laughs> <Yeah>. our <laughs> childhood right. 70s, 80s. You know, sort of the the monoculture of the time and the things that which were was better then. And um. But there is a way in which the kind of idiosyncrasies that made Lucianne a remarkable figure. We now have studied idiosyncrasies and studied transgressive behaviors. You know, sort of dressing up as a, in a as a as a different gender, being a different gender. If you insist on being a different gender, you know, it's a lot of costumery and performative yeah, right. stuff. And the thing is that there were, and she wasn't really an eccentric, but there were singular personalities, and a lot of the culture or, today original. is about is yeah, about yeah. draining the life out of being singular. Like there's a lot of enforcement. I mean, obviously there was enormous enforcement of cultural norms before the 1960s. Don't get me wrong, but right, but right. Um, there was a whole category of person who was not categorizable. And that person exists less and less because right. everybody is. But I also feel like there's something about, yeah, something about that kind of original person um, that, that you fit in a weird way. You fit. There was a there's a place for you to be original. I mean, I remember this great story that Jonah would tell. And we, you know, we're obviously our thoughts are with him, and I think he's um, he's going through that thing that a lot of us at this age go through, which is that we are saying goodbye to our parents. It's very, it is a rite of passage. Um, but I, I, he told a wonderful story that when she left Washington, D.C., there was an old watering hole, very famous watering hole called Duke Siebert's in Washington, D.C. And if you were a Doonesbury fan, like I was, and you were reading Doonesbury in the 70s, you would read uh, some of the scenes took place at Duke Siebert's. And you felt very in the know that you knew what Duke Siebert's was. But when um, I guess when his mom was a reporter, when she left D.C. to go to New York, I think that was what it was, the owner of Duke Siebert's, Duke Siebert, as a parting gift, um, ripped up her bar tab. And that is just something that that's the kind, it's just that it's like, uh, it's a kind of sophistication that you just, just isn't, doesn't, it's not around anymore. You couldn't, you couldn't, 
First of all, the Vito tab. What I I pay with your tab? Uh, I'll, can I pay with my Apple Watch? People will say like, can well, I use you know, Apple Pay? Like, there's no, there's no tab. There's no, there's none of that. There's yeah. none of the idea that if you were running a place called Duke Zebras, it was actually worth it to you to extend a few really interesting, colorful, thoughtful, smart, uh, funny people with a lot of character. A little, you know, give them a little, a uh, little space on that, a little time on that tab because you want them there. That doesn't, you know, that's not. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about how if you said something like, uh, you know, there's a guy named Elon Musk and he now bought something called Twitter 15 years ago, the number of things you would have to explain about that sentence to the person you were 15 years ago would be sort of like mind blowing. Well, Jonah tells this story that that I think perfectly encapsulates how the world has changed. That I think when his brother was uh, was a was a a tiny baby, uh, this is in his um, in his G file about his mother that she had to go to a meeting at Sardi's or like a, 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 a classic <laughs> yeah. New York watering hole establishment, and she didn't have a babysitter. And so she brought the baby and had a hat and the baby, and she went to the coat check and she checked her right. hat and she checked Josh. Right. And the coat check lady held Josh while she had her meeting. So, number one, a place a woman wears a hat. Number two, she's going to a watering hole with a check room. Number three, she has a baby. Number four, she's right. beating guys for madmen like drinks. And number five, she gives the baby to the hat check girl. Strange. Every detail, it like it's so perfect, evokes a right. time long gone. And I, maybe you have to be somebody like us, but I mean, there's something achingly sad about the fact that none of this exists anymore. It's all been replaced by other versions of it in in you know in their own way. But it it is. It is this um, glamour. I don't think right. we have a lot of glamour anymore, particularly, or the things that were. Well, it's funny glamour. because as yeah. we're all, if you think about culture, it's now all been since then. It's all been about, hey man, do your own thing, be your own thing. You got to do your own thing, fly your freak flag, John. All that stuff, right? And it does seem like we've lost that kind of the, the actual without any real sort of social guardrails of the, of the old style. I don't think you're freer. I remember when I was teaching um, English after college uh, at my old school and every now and then there'd be this sort of movement towards a, um, um, you know, a dress code. You know, every now and then the, the, the teachers say, look, you just, uh, it's too much. There's two schools, Andover and I went to Andover, and there's Andover and Exeter, and Exeter's a lot of dress code. And the kids at Andover always thought, oh my God, that's much, much, uh, that's too restrictive, man. I've got to express myself with my outfit. Um, and I remember, like, I was only 22 or something, and I was a teaching fellow there. I had been, I had been a student there within four or five years, whatever it was, four years of college. Um, but even I could see. When the students were saying, yeah, we don't have a dress code because we want to, like, be ourselves. It's like, well, you do have a dress code, I would say. It's a very strict dress code. <laughs> it's just that it's enforced by students, not by faculty. But it's a code, and you live by it. And the idea that freedom is one of these things that is liberating, I think, it's, it's also, the cliche of it is also incredibly, incredibly restrictive. Because I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's a woman around who would wear a hat. Like, oh, I can't right. wear a hat. I, well, I want to wear a hat. So I was thinking about, you know, the the true meaning of diversity. I read somewhere that there is some gender-affirming surgery program or some right. like psychological assessment of whether somebody uh, should be considered a candidate for gender affirming surgery or something like that. And it's now gotten to the point where one of the markers for somebody who may need or require or do good with gender affirming surgery. Uh, if, if someone is born female, as we now say, um, is that they cut their hair short. And I was thinking, the rigidity of this this system how how does it differ from the most absurdly cliched idea which would be 
oh, that woman cut her hair into a pixie. She must be a lesbian. That that's the only thing that, and so there, we live in a world without guardrails and without boundaries, and they're all being reasserted in the most right. vulgar possible fashion. The, the in a worst way that, possible way, right? And, and well, in a way that 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 uh, conforms to the social norms of the current American elite, just like they always conform to the social norms of an elite, but in some ways are more preposterous because right. they themselves are being backed by this kind of, I don't know, antinomian, no rules atmosphere. And then, you know, so somebody like Lucianne to get back to her. So she was a welter of contradictions. You know, she was an anti-feminist, mm-hmm who you know was a was an unbelievably independent working working woman created her own literary agency was a freelance writer you know involved herself in politics in very you know unconventional ways was a spy for nixon on the mcgovern campaign plane stuff like that (laughs) so she was a very she she was and you know she and my mother who passed away in may were friends i mean they were they were i i was lucianne was really my friend but so I first met Lucianne when I was 11 years old, 11 or 12, and um, I was obsessed, you know, with old Jewish comedians. Even at the, they weren't <laughs> wow. even old then. They weren't uh, even old then. As, as we do, the, the, right? Sort of, we go, ooh, you like you like the old the, uh, the old yeah. cartoon fainting. Ooh, yeah. lean back. So like, so like, I was fascinated by the Catskills and Catskills hotels, and my parents were the sorts of people who would never in a billion years be caught dead in a Catskills hotel. They well, were too well, Wow, we have that in common. My parents, too. Right. So they were too snob, whatever. But one <laughs> weekend, my mother gets invited to be on a panel at Grossinger's, which was the fanciest sure, of the Catskill sure. hotels, at a singles weekend. And her, and so she probably got some small honorarium, but she got a free weekend at Grossinger's, like two nights, da 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 And she was on a panel at the singles weekend, which was what's wrong with women's lib. Okay. So on the panel (laughs) were my mother and somebody else, my mother who had written a book called the new chastity, which was a, which was an argument against the women's Mm -hmm. lib movement and Lucianne and her friend, Jeannie Sekel and Lucianne Goldberg and Jeannie Sekel had started something called the pussycat league, which was why, why, why are women trying to act like men? They shouldn't act like men. Right, right, and and she sat there. There was this ballroom of basically men. I mean, it was like a singles weekend. So of course, it was a sausage party, yeah, <laughs> like but, all but, singles events but, are. But kosher sausage, not not Grossinger's. Grossinger's, I think, wasn't kosher. I may be wrong, but oh, I it's a joke being because like yes, because a Jewish, right? Yeah, but I just I, was I making needed, a I needed to become literal and humorless there just for a second. Um, All right. And Lucianne was just like playing off the crowd like crazy. And my mother was deeply amused by this and said to her, and she's like, I always wanted to be a Catskills Tumbler. That's what, that's what oh, yeah. Lucianne said. She was like on stage or Grossinger's where, you know, like the previous weekend, <laughs> Morty Gunty, you know, or that night, Morty Gunty or Georgie uh, Jessel. Know, yeah, so Tumblr been... was the guy who'd come out and do a little comedy and work the crowd and say, yeah. Yeah, who we got here from uh, New Jersey? And then he'd do a few jokes and yeah. he would tumble, you'd get them, he would like warm them up yeah. in a way. We, we, and, we, and, and we sort of we like still a, use that word, by the way. Yeah. Sort of like performance art also. The Tumblr yeah. was at, at smaller hotels, would do it all day, would like walk around the pool area and go, Stanley, go in the uh, put some suntan lotion on. You look like a lobster, you know, like that kind of thing. Like it was sort of my nightmare. I would hate these places, like a strolling violinist (laughs) at a, you know, like a strolling mariachi (laughs) mariachi band at a Mexican restaurant. Like that, that was part of what they were. So that that was my first exposure. I could just hear like my uh, my long line of um, I wouldn't say anti-Semitic, but like um um yeah. Semitic confused relatives saying, so you go to this place and you're having a nice time outside by the pool. And then this, 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 this character comes by and starts to talk to you. 
and talk to other people and you and you're just i'm just sitting here having my cocktail but yeah. the idea of that kind of community hmm it's good idea though i mean I, i'm surprised they i don't, find it awful the, the, but by the way rob you're yeah. you 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 started like uh, you were involved in theater and you and um there is nothing that i hate more I think they're very worth than no than participatory theater. The theater. Oh, it's where the worst. Yeah, you, no, it's the worst. You as yeah. you are, you become involved as an oh, audience member. You get in the to show. walk around like there's the murder mysteries where you go from room to room and like uh, even the ones that are sort of interesting just visually, like Sleep No More, which closed here was open for years. There's just something so incredibly tedious about it. Like, we're going to create you're into the room and then somebody in character, some some like otherwise unemployed chorus boy or chorus girl in character as like a mysterious world war one veteran and said come here to the look in the refractory and you're like oh no i gotta get out of here get me I out of here so interacting much. with people in cult yeah. in character is the worst yeah well well how about when you go to like a historical home or you go to some you know the mansion or something oh no and then they have they like the have Plymouth plantation the woman dressed in 18th century clothes sitting mm. at a loom right and it's like you can ask her questions why greetings strangers like, welcome to my looms looms room i'm here for i'm doing good something for goody jeans and uh, yeah. also like my candle making and like oh my god get me out of here get me out of here yeah, yeah. um Anyway, I hate that so much, and and yet, you know, it's sort of like they think, oh, this is so great. This is a way of involving people. You could, in yeah, right. They might find otherwise boring, but um, also like the idea. I may, I'm just too much of a snob. It's like if you really knew about this, what you're doing, you'd be a professor of history, not yeah, like a, a envir environmental whatever tour guide. Um, and I know we have some other stuff to. Uh, so we, we we are sending Jonah our very very best. I don't know if he's going to listen to this. I hope he does. Um, but there is something I was going to. I was going to try a theory out on, on you. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a un, I'm always looking for the unified theory. I think this one actually might work. So I was like, um, I, this is how I got into this theory. Um, Elon Musk bought Twitter. Elon Musk is really you can't. I mean, you can't take it away from him. He's a brilliant guy really sort of does incredible cool things very very smart character he and all of his partners at paypal are very very smart i've, I've had the fortune of knowing two of them and they're just very impressive um but he's made i think he's made a terrible mistake and he's made a mistake that's a, a mistake of the kind that only smart people make because he said here's what he said he said i think twitter should be the town square the world's town square and I suddenly was thinking about that. I think, wait a minute. When has there ever been a town square? There's never been a town square. We, we, we've invented this fake thing of the town square. Where is the town square where everybody's in the town and they're all interacting? And like, no, that never, ever happened. You have a place, it's called Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, where lunatics can stand on a soapbox and other people hurry by that person. Yeah. Or you have an, uh, you know, you have a, an official town square where you have to uh, apply and you have to be given credentials, which of course now we think is ridiculous. But at the time, you were a credentialed person. Like in ancient Greece, it wasn't just like anybody could stand up and say, "Listen to me." Like that, that's never happened. We have never. There was not a bit. There's not a newspaper in America that was actually printing the news unbiased and unfiltered until well, forever, frankly. Um, we do there's no town square we don't want a town square no one wants this thing that's the problem with it that you don't want it that this thing that people say they want or they, i guess it's just now a cliche word you do not want well, nobody so wants the town square okay that's so first, first of all part. i think this is a brilliant point um that in fact, sort of like in the world of the town square, the pre-modern world, if you think about America in the 19th century, what would have happened in the town square? It's not like there would have been a free-for-all conversation. It's that Edward Everett would have shown up in your town and given a speech for four hours. <laughs> One person talking. Right. It's right. not like right. everyone is having a, 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 a party line conversation. Hey, when do it's I get to talk? Yeah, exactly. yeah, it would have been hit okay. right. <laughs> so, you know, that was entertainment in the 19th century was Edward Everett, the congressman. You know, it's like the famous story. Edward Everett was the guy who spoke before Lincoln. 
at Gettysburg. Right. Right. And spoke for two and a half hours. And then Lincoln spoke for three minutes and changed the changed the world and changed the way speeches were given forever. Right. So so the 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 four hour stem winder, you know, eventually sort of right. became except except in except that in Havana, like, you know, it was sort of a, so that's, that's one that thing about the town while, square. Yeah. And the second thing is it is the ultimate oxymoron to say the town square of the world. What is the definition of a town? It's a small place, not a large right. place. It's not that the town square has 5,000 people in it. A town, right. in, in again, when the town square was a real thing, was a place where 500 people lived. But we're so used to billion. But we're so used to talking about it in this kind of weird nostalgia. I mean, I guess what made me think of it uh, to bring it up as we were talking about Luciana, that there she really did go to a, ho- a, a restaurant with a hat and a baby and have a meeting and a couple of cocktails probably, and then collect her hat and her baby and go home. That that is true. That and it's nostalgia that's real, right? But this is this bizarre nostalgia for. In, in fact, what. What Twitter is, I think the reason why it's so attractive to some people, it's a place where you can go and be insulting and not get punched. Whereas in the town square, you would have been punched. Right. That was the 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 uh, the only guardrail on the conversation or any conversation is the, the 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 look on the face or the fist of the person you're talking to, who may may be getting more angry or more hurt or more uh, ready to punch in the teeth. Um, and so uh, I, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Of what we want, but it, he is parodying. I understand why he's doing it because we—he's been hearing it his whole life. We've all been hearing it. it's part of our drinking water now. You're supposed to say things like "We want the town hall back," where we never had it, and we never had it for reasons. And those reasons we are seeing now on Twitter, where people say, "How dare you say that? You're hurting me. Your speech is violence." All those things we sort of recreated virtually in Twitter, which is the reason why. We shouldn't ever really gather like that. We shouldn't right. really know what each other believes. It's this, We are not better off for knowing each other's thoughts. And I really do believe that. But I, I uh, So I have another theory that follows this theory that I, I want um, okay. to discuss. But you probably have I, a let's spot. Let's discuss that after I talk to you, tell you, Rob, and our listeners about Ladder. Because if you're anything like me, you have a certain procrastinative tendency to put things off to the very last minute, you know, going to the DMV, you know, seeing a dentist, you wait until you have huge tooth pain, which is really stupid, that kind of thing. And well, most of the time that works out. The one thing you cannot afford to wait on is setting up term coverage life insurance because... You've probably seen life insurance commercials on TV and thought, I'll look into that later. No, 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 no. This isn't something you can wait on. Choose life insurance through Ladder. Today, Ladder is 100% digital. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, just answer a few questions about your health in an application. You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. They made Forbes' best life insurance 2021 list. There are no hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. You get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross this off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash glop today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash glop, ladderlife.com slash glop. And we thank Ladder for sponsoring the glop podcast so rob tell me your your your, your right, my, second. this is my other uh fully unified theory which i think explains wh- where we are and where we've been for the past 25 30 years and what we'll call this age um there was this period after i think after world war ii or maybe even you know, the, the, the 20th century was the sort of the period of great um uh knowledge right great advancement we split the atom we harnessed uh, power we flew jet planes we went to this moon we created the computer all these great things container shipping which i believe is the greatest invention of 20th century um and we kind of got we kind of felt like okay well we know there's a bunch of things that we know and concurrent with the great the great rise of knowledge right was also this giant decline in 
uh, religious faith and religious observance around the world, certainly for a lot of people, because, well, what's, where do you, where do you, once you've decided that we come from apes and that we, well, all that stuff, right. And we are now entering, I think we started entering it absolutely on 2001, September 11th, we entered the age of what I will, I am now calling, and I'm trying to, you know, like figure out how to write this, the age of blunder, where very, very smart people who know things make colossal, colossal mistakes. Um, it's the great humbling, right? What what is What was more humbling for America? Not... I don't think it was Vietnam, which was uh, um, a mistake, but a policy mistake that everybody knew going in. It was the Iraq War. Uh, we had an, we had a war based on. I mean, I believe I don't think anybody was lying. I, I think everyone was in good faith looking at satellite imagery, which of course tells you everything you need to know, and saying, "Well, we know this now, so we got to go in." Um, COVID enormous blunder of science and investigation and public health officials huge worldwide blunder we locked people in their houses we did all sorts of crazy stuff based on we, we constantly the word science and knowledge all the time right elon musk smartest guy in the world thinks he knows what twitter's all about uh every time we turn around like, vladimir putin it's a perfect example vladimir putin sat there but right before the on the the the, the night before he invaded ukraine vladimir putin was thought of by everyone as pretty smart guy like yeah i don't like him he's a bad dude but he's really smart he managed to change the election all these things he didn't do he's got twenty-seven thousand twitter bots working to spread his propaganda rush remember compromat all that stuff he's his guy he's like a the most powerful mafia don in the world and the next by the next morning we have to suddenly begin to think well what what if what if he's dumb? And I don't mean dumb like stupid. I mean dumb. Only smart people can be dumb. He really thought that when he said, how many tanks do I have? And they were they replied, you got 100 tanks, sir. But he had 100 tanks. He only had two. He really thought that he was uh, he had the information he needed. And this is an enormous blunder. We're not we're not seeing it, 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 Ukraine's a perfect example. Ukraine, COVID, all these these are a huge, huge mistake of of pride and arrogance and the, the the feeling that you've got all the details you've got covered and it's the world or it's god or whatever it is is coming back and saying no 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 you don't understand you know nothing you know nothing and so i believe that we're entering that i hope we're, we're going to get out of that age soon but i think that we are in the age of like enormously smart people making huge huge errors based on their own or maybe it's the culture's arrogance um of how much you can know and how much you can bring. I mean, look at like people even talk about these these, these polls. Everyone now is a pollster or a poll analyzer. Well, Sean, that poll skewed. Let me tell you about that poll skewed. And and the anger when the polls are wrong is so bizarrely neurotic. It's like I'm angry that I didn't know the future. I'm angry that tomorrow is a question mark, and I, that really makes me mad because I want to know. And I just, I find that, I think that that's a new feeling and that's a new era that we're entering. And I'm calling it the age of blunder. And if anyone, uh, you know, call me if you want to write that book, because I, I don't, I probably won't get to it. I'm writing sitcoms, but, <laughs> but I do believe that's where we are. All right. That's I mean, my unified theory. Okay. I like it. And I will, I mean, I think you can, you can date it uh, further back. So I think every one of these financial bubbles that has exploded, oh, right. with sorry, enormous, yes. right. With enormous, but yes. I mean, going back, I don't think you need to you, start with the meltdown of 2008. I think um, the dot-com bubble when it burst. So there mm -hmm. were bu people like me who don't really understand finance and didn't know tech and all of that. And then, but here's what you saw. You saw there was something called, I can't remember what was it called, the well or the globe.com. Oh, yeah. There were these, right. right. So these things had IPOs in the late nineties and uh, they would have an IPO and this thing, I think again, the globe.com and the IPO, it was a billion dollars, which then was a lot of money. Now it's nothing, right. but then it was a lot of money. And you look at it and you go, but it's it's a chat room. Like, yeah. like AOL has chat rooms. You can start a chat room on AOL uh, 
or, you know, or on something, you know, like for five, what, why, what is this? And people go, you don't know what you're talking you don't about. Know, this you is, don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. No, but you, I mean, you don't understand like this, this there's an involvement engagement. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wait, I don't, I'm sorry, but the emperor is <laughs> naked. And they're like, yeah, right. no, you just don't understand. You know, it's like the national bank of change. Right. You remember the commercial? It's like, how do we make yeah. money making change volume, you know, like that volume. Right. And then two years later, the, the bubble burst. And the only like survivor was Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban sold this non-working 360 degree camera to AOL for like $500 million cash. And then he became a billionaire and he's really kind of an idiot, but there he is with his idiocy with a billion dollars. And then you have have these various meltdowns and every time one is going on and you go, I don't really understand how this is. There would be people going, you don't Uh, understand. You don't, you know, nothing. Here's what I guess. Here's what I mean. It's like I I, I get it, but I, I get what you're saying. It's I, not like people I, didn't know that they yeah, were wonders. That's but my... I'm making a mistake. I'm making. I'm sorry. I'm making a distinction between uh, uh, kind of funny crackpot enthusiasm, yeah. which is what I would say is like the that's the first dot com boom. That's what an NFT is, right? It's like basically it's a link to a JPEG, mm-hmm. and you pay sixty thousand yeah. dollars for a link to a JPEG. Yeah. And then the the worst thing is somebody will try to explain to you why it's not, and then you're like, okay, whatever. I surrender. Yeah. Just stop talking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean that the, the, the 2008, I think, uh, analogy is more closer to my unified theory, so I'm throwing out the other ones. Um, it wasn't so much that they made a mistake or that they were enthusiastic about their profits. It was that they believed they had figured out how to do this with no risk. So they had come up with a formula, value at risk, which always returned a number that was exactly what they wanted, which was, okay, there's no risk. They were super smart. And they had decided that there there are some things we can know. Um, I guess did I ever tell you the story about the the crooked appraiser? No, go ahead. It's like uh, a friend of mine was investing in real estate in the in um, uh, in California, and uh, and he had a bunch of people trying to say you know you know you should what you should do is you should buy this house in Palm Springs, and then you should um, uh, take out a instantly take out a loan against the rising value because it'd be worth twice as much, and then go and buy other houses in the desert area. Uh, which is a very hot um, uh, real estate market, and then you just basically ladder them. You 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 keep borrowing against them, keep borrowing against them. Before you know it, you have a portfolio of about twenty houses. And he said, "Well, wait. Um, how do you get them? How do you get the house? How do you know that they're going to rise in value?" And they said, "Oh, they always do because they always do. They always do. Everything goes up. They always do. But if they don't, or to make sure, we just call the crooked appraiser." And so there's this guy, they call him the crooked appraiser. And every one of these things is like five or six of them. Because the appraiser gets paid a set fee. It's like a notary, right? You get paid by the state because you're the appraiser. You're not supposed to be swayed by anything. You're supposed to be this kind of like colorless drab appraiser to appraise the value of a property. Uh, but the appraiser would drive up in his battered old, you know, Oldsmobile Chiva to the property and see the owners had Range Rovers and Bentleys and the realtor had a Range Rover and a Bentley and everyone seemed to be getting rich except the appraiser. And so, so what they discovered was if you give the appraiser a Rolex, um, the appraiser will tell you that your house is worth $6 million, whatever. And that it all came down to this one human thing, right? And we have, it, and I guess this is sort of a larger issue, but all of that, like all of the value at risk quant guys in New York and hedge funds and banks, it all the 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 linchpin, the thing, the thing that was the, the Achilles heel of their entire financial empire was that there was a dude at the bottom who wasn't getting his taste and he wanted his taste. And when they started giving him his taste, that's when the thing collapsed. And there's all they, they always forget there is a person. And the people will always mess up your system. You have this beautiful, perfect system, and they'll always mess it up. Uh, and I think that's what what Elon Musk is going to discover. And that certainly is what COVID that happened to COVID, especially because we now know pretty much for sure it was lab leak. There's always somebody going to mess it up. We haven't, right? We we and we will never um, mitigate that risk. You know how you said that you know this the world got got crazy because people stopped believing in things, and I'm now going to praise a non-Jewish but uh, religious 
conviction, but that is extremely helpful in this regard, which is where this uh, ties into classic religious thinking is the idea that man is fallen. (laughs) Therefore, the systems that man creates will be corrupted by man's fallen state and um, have to be limited in their power and their reach and things like that and 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 uh, checked uh, and balanced because of their fallenness. Like you can't yeah. try and and this is the hubris of the you know the hubris of the modern age is this idea that uh, not only is man and society not only a man and society perfectible, but that you can you can break the code. That means that uh, you know you can avoid entropy, or you can avoid human weakness, or you can you can mitigate all of that and create a system that is, in some sense, perfect because it's not going to fail, right? And yeah, and when people accepted that nature was a complicated thing and that there might be divine retribution for bad behavior and stuff like that, they were more guarded and cautious in their actions yeah and and more more aware of the tragic nature of life which is <laughs> if you're going to make an investment you know there's a 50 to 80 percent chance yeah. that you're going to lose every single cent that you put into that thing right. and therefore maybe keep it under your mattress you yeah, know we all have that yeah we all know the, the, the story of the gambler like no i got a system john i got a system <laughs> I go to the casino and I win because of my system. And you know that guy's a little, but but that is like with the apple, right? In the garden, the apple isn't it doesn't contain the information. It just contains the the arrogance of knowledge. It's not right. knowledge. It's just like, hey, I ate the apple. I forgot. I I ate the apple. I can invest in a uh, 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 residential real estate in, in Riverside County because so I had that apple. I so, think, <laughs> like, okay, way. well, good luck. There are two things. One is that I don't think people are quite sort of um, grokked the notion that Elon Musk may have made the single worst decision in the history right. of the planet. He is yeah. personally on the hook for more yeah. money than any other human being has ever been on the hook for anything ever in in since mankind emerged from the primordial ooze. This one guy, yeah, as a result of his own peculiarities and peccadilloes, um, if he isn't ruined, it will be an unbelievable miracle, and he will be the smartest person who ever lived, and no one will ever be able to gainsay that. But it's rare to be able to look at something and say, you know what, this actually, nothing like this has ever happened before. Like, this this is a scale right. of personal risk that, you know, except for somebody doing something incredibly fool, like, you know, elevator surfing or, you know, jumping off a cliff without a parachute or, so, you know, whatever, it's... We just haven't, well, haven't. Yeah. Seen. I mean, I think it's really, I think it fits into my blunder, my age of blunder, because yeah. um, he he's looking at Twitter and he says, okay, well, this is a, uh, this is a coding problem, engineering problem. So he's got a, so a new team together. They're all about engineering and coding, which I sort of get, I mean, but it isn't. Twitter doesn't really need that much. It actually, it's a, it's a consumer product that's advertising supported. It will be for as long as he owes quarterly payments to his banks. He can't transform this thing. He took it private, but the thing about shareholders is you don't owe him any money. It's all theoretical money that you owe or you gain or you lose uh, in the stock market. They're 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 rooting for you, the stock yeah. market, the, the, the shareholders. What he has is creditors, and the creditors. It does matter. You have to pay them in dollars, U.S. dollars, hard currency, every quarter. You got to pay those payments. You don't pay those payments. They take what you put up as collateral, which in this case is your enormous personal wealth, which is based entirely in Tesla, and they're going to take Tesla. Now, I hope they don't. I hope he figures it out. But right now, his problem is that he is trying to solve the problem of Twitter as if what everyone wants is the town square, which no one wants, as if it's a, a technology problem, which it's not, and as if the giant consumer product companies advertisers are going to continue to advertise on especially now that they have other places to go um and i just i he 
it's a it's a it's show business. They're in show, t- Twitter is yep. show business, and nobody I there get to that. is in show I want to get to the show business analogy because I have an idea there. But let me first right. talk to everybody about Donors Trust, our, one of our sponsors today. The tax friendly way to simplify your charitable giving without compromising their va- without compromising your values is cancel culture coming for your charitable dollars. Oh, big banks that sponsor charitable savings accounts or donor advised funds, as they're formerly called, have a history of slow walking or blocking donations to conservative and libertarian charities. Charities rejected by some of the big banks include the Atlas Network, the National Review Institute, the National Rifle Association Foundation, Liberty Council, and others. Clearly, not every donor-advised fund provider welcomes libertarians or conservatives. So let Donors Trust help you service your charitable giving. Donors Trust was built with GLOP listeners in mind, people who believe in limited government and constitutional rights, and know they're worth fighting for. And they are worth fighting for, such people. If you already have a donor-advised fund, consider opening a rollover account. It can be done in three simple steps by calling my friends at Donors Trust. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Partner with the fund that matches your values. To learn more, download their prospectus at www.donorstrust.org. That's www.donorstrust.org. To align your giving with your values, visit www.donorstrust.org slash glop. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring the glop podcast. Now, you, Rob, you just said that the humbling moment, the humbling nature of this age of blunder will lead people to understand that they don't understand and that will, this is the cure. And that's fantastic, by the way, not understanding is liberating. But let me, let me offer this counter. Um, The most influential sentence uh, in Hollywood history was written by yeah. William Goldman in his book, Adventures of the Screen Trade. And what did he say? He said, nobody knows anything. This is right. a long peroration about how how do you make hits? Well, how, why is a movie a hit? And he says, nobody knows. Nobody can do it. You can't generate hits because you want to generate hits. Nobody knows anything. Now, this the minute that he wrote this... Everybody who read it said, my God, he's right. This is the answer. The answer is there is no answer. The answer is there. But did it then lead people into greater caution or whatever? No, because in the world in which nobody knows anything, you now have a ready excuse. Why did you think spending $250 million on John Carter of Mars would be a good investment? (laughs) Look, nobody knows anything. Well, that is not the seemed like a good idea at the time, but from the minute yeah. that we started it, we were aware that nobody knows anything. No, but nobody, you're not aware of it. Because certain people are aware of it. But uh, there was a famous story. Brandon Tartikoff, who ran uh, NBC for a long time, was actually a really, really great guy, very smart guy, very funny guy. Um, uh, went on to run Paramount, so it left uh, NBC, was running Par- chairman of Paramount Studios for a very short period. But he was sort of a big guy, very popular guy, very sort of media savvy guy. So the New York Times Sunday Magazine did a piece on him, Brandon Tartikoff, because they, I think the, the the bag of the piece was Mr. TV goes to the movies. It was considered at that point because oh my god, these are two two different worlds, right? Um, and he said uh, to the reporter, he said, "Listen, uh, making movies, running a studio is like a crapshoot. You know, you roll the dice. You don't know. You roll the dice. You don't know." And he got a call on Sunday afternoon, angry call from Martin Davis, who was then running uh, not yet Paramount Communications, it might have been, was Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount Studios. And he said, uh, you can't go on TV, you can't go on the news and say that it's a crapshoot. It's not a crapshoot. We have a system. And Tartikoff said, well, no, no, actually we don't. It's a crapshoot. And Marty Davis apparently said, you can't tell people that. I can't have my my investors do not want to hear that it's a crapshoot. Um, Tartikoff only lasts a few more years in that job. It was the, it was the wrong job for him because the, the thing is, we give people these jobs. You know, Anthony Fauci. We we gave him the job of telling us, of being sure, of being certain, and he took it because people like it. I want to be the. I want to tell you what to do. I don't want to. I don't want to live in a world where nobody knows anything. I mean, I want to live in a world where you don't know anything. And you know you don't know anything, but I want to be the guy that you think knows everything, which is pretty much underlies, you know, all 
usually when you if you're you have friends who have trouble in their relationship or parents and like almost all human interaction comes down to uh you're dumb and you don't know it and i'm smart and you don't know it that's pretty much what it is right so they, William Goldman, who was a was let's be wrong, he was a brilliant writer, but he was a writer in Hollywood, you know. And that's the old joke, is like old Polish joke, you know. The Polish actress comes to Hollywood and she sleeps with a writer, right? He's a writer, and nobody in nobody making decisions goes in drives in their fancy car in their Tesla and glides into the studio gates, which open, by the way, automatically, because, of course, you're important and you know what you're doing. And they park right by your office. You get the best parking space because, of course, you're important you know what you're doing. And you walk into this office and you have the office. people are running around and everybody's like treating you like a pasha because, of course, you're smart. You know what you're doing. And then you sit down and you have to make a decision. Well, you're smart. You know what you're doing. At no point does anybody say, hey, listen, we don't know. I don't know. Let's try it. They never say that. And they should. I just wonder whether there is a mindset that sets in when you say the world is just so infinitely complex that it can't be broken down. And that for some people, ultimately, even Anthony Fauci, Anthony Fauci's like, well, I I didn't say close the schools. What do you mean I said close the schools? I didn't close the schools. Now, Anthony Fauci is 81 or 82 years old. There was a time when he said, I didn't close the schools. Right. And you would have had to go into the into the morgue of a of a of a newspaper uh and look up hard clips or go yeah. to microfiche machines to prove right. that it was hard so you didn't do it it yeah. was hard it was easier to lie like yeah. the kind of the famous you know i, I was just thinking because lucienne was a was sort of a friend or acquaintance of a of a once world famous con artist named clifford irving and I was thinking oh, about right. this because she and I had had a lot of fun talking about Clifford Irving, whom she knew. And Clifford Irving went to a publishing house and said, "I have, I have uh, succeeded in obtaining the memoirs of Howard Hughes." Then, you know, sort of the name that meant richest man in the world, even though he wasn't, but he was this crazy recluse who lived at the top of a hotel in Las Vegas, hadn't been seen in public in years. And, you know, all of it. Okay. And under the control of the Mormons, right? Yeah. And he, Clifford Irving, this is 1972 or three, sold this fake (laughs) manuscript to a publishing house for millions of dollars. And then it sort of got out. And then Howard Hughes said, I didn't write a memoir. And then he was arrested as, you know, for fraud. But I mean, right. like, she shouldn't have been. Today, Howard Hughes would tweet, I never wrote that memo. Yeah. It, it would go. Nowhere. Howard Hughes so, would tweet from his verified account. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like there was a whole world in which Anthony Fauci grew up when you could, you could right. play this game of saying, I never said that. And it takes. 12 seconds to find the clip in which he said, I don't think it's a good idea for schools to remain open right. or to be reopened or something like that. Right. Like it, it's just, it's a weird phenomenon that um, I don't even know what it means. It just well, sort of came up. And- I, 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 yeah, no, I think it's true. I mean, I, I would say that two, two things about that. One, one, um, one the other thing I've been chasing up, I've been thinking about this for a while is um, just find one example, right? So, Part of the problem is that everybody who runs the world right now is just incredibly, impossibly old. The old yeah. people are just the worst, and they're everywhere, and they run everything, and they are always make these horrible mistakes. And traditionally, old people are pushed aside by the next generation or the generation after that uh, in a kind of a rude uh, and v- a vicious fashion because young people really, they want you you're old and in the way they want you out. Um and then the old people would then start some kind of pointless war over, you know, barren terrains to make sure that there are fewer young people to push them out. That's kind of how the world works, right? So um, everybody's really old. And so I just tracing back, uh, I, you, know, I just, you know, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump and political leaders, right? Uh, 
I don't know about Putin, but definitely he's he's the recipient of this. But there's a certain class of politician and American of certain age. And there are certain young people like you and me, right? (laughs) Young, in inverted commas. (laughs) Very young. But when when I was just becoming interested in the world and politics and becoming interested in politics and that kind of stuff, right? As a, you know, as a, as a, a college kid and as right after college, I would watch, uh, the Sunday talk shows. And you'd watch like Brinkley and Meet the Press and the McLaughlin group was great. And, and the thing about the McLaughlin group was they're just reporters acting like they knew stuff. Um, hey, this is what, you know, let me tell you what's happening, John. Let me tell you what's really happening, they would say. And that was right around the time was the rise of the celebrity political consultants so suddenly you're seeing political consultants on these things and they were in their suits and saying let me tell you something it's all about get out the vote okay at this point it's about get out the. they were just and these cliches which might have been true in 1978 or 1980 1982 who knows they became this bedrock faith that people believed in right and i think it's like that's what's going on in trump's head or people's heads i definitely think that's what's going on in putin's head because putin has absorbed this idea which we've been sending for years which is it's all about optics let me tell you something you control the picture you control the policy uh it's all about like uh, the optics of something what it looks like the image and he's bought this and of course it's not about that at all never was about that it was just something stupid thing that people would say on these sunday morning talk shows that then just kind of embedded and sort of grew up like could zoo right and now we believe it's real early voting always hurts republicans the guy who spends more is going to win no evidence to that and then what i love is like they've uh, people let me tell you something john people vote for the guy they want to have a beer with (laughs) which is Really, the obverse of the truth, which is the people yeah. vote for the guy they think wants to have a beer with them, which is a very different thing. <laughs> and um, but we ha- we believe these things. So all of these blunders are based on these like incredibly ossified, creaky, easily disproved cliches. Like everything we did about COVID, I know I'm going on too long. Everything we did about COVID, it wasn't as if people said, "Well, what, we didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know." Well, how do we know? We didn't know, but we did. COVID, as a respiratory illness virus, has behaved exactly like you would have predicted it would have behaved in October of 2019. It didn't do anything different. It behaved exactly the way we observed it in 2019, December, and in January of 2020. It didn't change. It behaved exactly the way we'd have predicted. All that changed was we decided that what we knew we were going to throw out. Um, I just want to tell a funny story about the ossific- ossified, the world of ossification in which I am one of the ossified figures. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I think it's being released this week, uh, my friend Steve Kornacki asked me to participate. He was doing a podcast called The Revolution about the rise of sort of Republican, when the Republicans right. achieved parity with Democrats in the 90s. And uh so there's a segment uh, that I'm on, and I'm on with uh, Eleanor Clift, uh, famous wow. from the McLaughlin Group, and Susan Page of USA Today, um, who has, you know, sort of been around. So we're having this conversation, talking about election night 1994, which was when New- the Gingrich Revolution happened, right? And telling stories, and I told a story about going to a lunch with Robert Novak, again, also of the McLaughlin Group, uh, now, you know, long dead, uh, you know, who had a lunch, and everyone had to guess how many seats Republicans would win. And for the only time in my entire life, I got the number exactly right and won, won like $800 in a pool. Uh, (laughs) The only time I ever won a pool, it just so happens I hit the number right. And uh, Cliff is talking about this and traveling with it. And and I was sitting there and I'm thinking, you know what's really weird about this? There's a show, there was a radio show in Washington for many years on the public radio station called the Diane Ream Show. Oh, Daily I knew you were going to say show. Diane Ream, yeah. And on Friday mornings, Diane Ream had a political Diane show. Ream. Right. Diane Ream. And um, I was on this many times. Uh, you know, probably 20 times in the course of my life mm-hmm. in Washington or something. And I realized I'm sitting there with Steve Kornacki, who is, you know, I don't know, 20, 20 odd years younger than I am, which means that uh, he's really far younger than Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know right. how much younger and, and he's 100 years younger, younger than, than Eleanor. Clint. Somewhat yeah. more younger than, than, yeah. than Susan Page. And I'm like, we were on the Diane Ream show. Yeah. Talking about the Gingrich Revolution 
29, 28 years ago, the three of us, I yeah. think we were on together and here we are like, I'm happy to talk about it, but like, really? Like we're just reconstituting right. a conventional, I don't think I'm a conventional pro, but Eleanor and Susan are pretty conventional members of the mainstream media talking about this. And it's like saying the same has thing. Nothing changed. Has nothing changed. And I'm saying the same thing. Like interestingly, the same they were being more complimentary of Gingrich than they would have been at the time. Right. Right. They were sort of like at least he believed in something. Kevin McCarthy doesn't believe in anything or something like that. I just thought it was striking in that this whole thing about how the boomers refused to leave the stage. Well, they, the, right. Now, I mean, in the, yeah. the Joseph Campbell sense, we would say, you know, in the in the in the giant mythology of the world sense we would say that the boomers have failed because they did not create and raise a generation with the courage to kill them right <laughs> that's what you need you need you need to raise children with the courage to pull the plug when it comes time to pull the plug uh, i don't mean that i mean that literally but i also mean that figuratively when they when they, when they don't wait to be promoted they muscle you aside with the kind of like ruthless incredibly uh, 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 power-hungry way that it own, that the world only works. But instead, you're like, if you're 80, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're an 80-year-old politician, which is, say, pretty much if you're every politician, right? And you look around, like, what, you want me to get off the stage for these clowns? They No, you know what? Come and take me. Come and take yeah. me. And of course, they don't, well, I don't want to come and take you. That's not, I want you to, like, you. I want you to want me. You know, that... <laughs> If 30-year-olds weren't so lame and so, like, you know, the court eunuchs of the, our age, uh, there would be no 80-year-olds running things. They'd be all gone. They'd be in assisted living facilities. They'd be at Sarasota, Florida. Or or they'd be, you know, they'd be dead. They, they, we, we, we would have refreshed our culture, and we haven't. And it's not the young people's fault that they're completely, they're just completely useless. Yeah. It's their parents'. There you go. Rob, you need to do the Athletic Greens read. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You really need to do the Athletic Greens read. Speaking of vigor. Like two minutes. Yeah, speaking of vigor. Um, vigor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. In fact, I used it um, this morning. I, it's called Athletic Greens. And I'm going to say AG1 because they want me to say AG1. But I'm so old school with Athletic Greens. I've been taking it for so long. I remember it was just Athletic Greens. But AG1. I started taking AG1. Uh, years and years and years ago, uh, when I was traveling, I got in little pouches. I think I heard about it from the the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, and I wanted sort of, I wanted like one, you know, you, as you know, I like universal things. One universal thing that was going to take care of everything, a supplement that actually tasted good and uh, sort of took care of uh, multivitamins and probiotics and all that stuff. And I've been using it for years, and I love it. It doesn't taste like it's like some kind of super healthy green thing that you have to grimace through. It has a mild tropical taste. It's not too sweet. And I actually look forward to taking it in the morning, but sometimes I take it in the afternoon, which is equally liberating. What is it? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of those good things. I take it in the morning um, when I remember to, but sometimes I remember not to, or I say, you know, I'm going to take it this afternoon, and I take it in the afternoon, and it's like it's the it's better than like much better than a cup of coffee, better than uh, the diet coke I used to drink in the afternoon. It actually does everything I want it to do. So one, it's one thing, one powder with the best things. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Less than a gram of sugar, which is important to me. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals, artificial anything. It still tastes great. And it also supports better sleep quality and recovery along with mental clarity and alertness right now. Time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop in a cup of water every day. I use the little packets. I recommend the little packets. That's it. No need for a million different pills, supplements. Look out for your health. Make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. I went to the doctor uh, for my physical last week, and he said, uh, I looked at my blood pan. He goes, yeah, you're like everybody else in New York, you've got a massive vitamin d deficiency um i don't uh uh i, I so now i got to take vitamin d uh and you can also get the five travel packs with your first purchase um 
but you're going to want more of those packs. I, I guarantee you. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash glop. That's athleticgreens, all one word, dot com slash glop. And then athleticgreens.com slash glop will help you take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. We thank Athletic Greens for sponsoring the Glob Podcast, and I thank them for a great product. Amazing. Um, I'm going to end on a melancholy note, which is I have almost nothing to recommend to anybody to watch or see, uh, go to the movies or or, or watch on TV, because um, I'm not really watching or seeing anything. And you uh, had a brilliant martini shot, your podcast last week, in which you, you sort of... Uh, raise the question of whether or not people who work in show business should be finding another thing to do with their <laughs> lives. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, I'm wondering whether my own apathy after half a century of being as committed a consumer of popular of popular aired and filmed culture as there probably could be uh, in the world while still being a relatively literate person. Um, whether this is, is this about me or is it about it? And I think it's kind of about it. I ag- I agree. It's about it. It's about the age of blunder. I don't know if I mentioned my, my unified theory. Um, they were out of gas um, and they got to find their gas. Um, well, the people who've been doing it have been doing it for a long time. The people, I, mean, I talked to some people I've known for 30 years, 30 years in this business. Um, and they have a, a bizarre concept of what's new. Uh, I would say, ironically, that now it's time to go back to the old. I think what they need is a, you know, put on a comedy again. They don't do many comedies. They don't put, a com- I think NBC doesn't have one comedy on the air. Um, and I would put on multi camera comedies. I would try to find the all in the family of the future. I would just let it go, let it rip. And I would make more of those small feature comedies. Remember, we used to go to the movies and see a comedy that was like a story, it was fully self contained and it was kind of funny about a guy who wanted this and all that. They don't do that anymore. They, 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 they stop being smart. Be dumb. Go and do the old stuff. But I will say there is one. I will now lead you on a, on a up up note. Okay. Um, as you know, thanks to you and your common your diabolical commentary magazine, I decided to write about TikTok a few years ago. And I just like it's basically like I'm going to try heroin once just to write about it. And I ended up on TikTok. I'm like I love it. I don't when I say I'm on it. I mean I look at it. I don't don't go looking for me to post TikToks. I don't do that. Right. Um, but I found there's there's a lot of great really funny interesting people on it and there's one guy and his t- his tiktok thing is called chef reacts that's all it is chef reacts and he's a, a working chef not a fancy chef he's a working chef very professional working chef and he's very taciturn he talks like this and he's kind of profane and he's, he does these things called tiktok duets which are side by side in which he will come he will react and do commentary against someone else's cooking video and there's tons of horrible just grotesque tiktok cooking videos that are just disgusting and he will react to them and it's hilarious and i see him every time i see him on my tiktok i'm like i gotta it's the but so you know that's like uh i mean he's basically a a version of you know jack benny watching somebody cook and you're now Uh, reminding um, me chef reacts you're reminding me of a movie that I can recommend, which is uh, pretty old, um, which is called Chef. And I bring, oh, right. bring it up because it's very, it's very fitting, this conversation. John Favreau, who is now be- best known for being kind of like the king of Disney live-action versions of cartoons, like The Lion King and The Jungle Book. And he's also the guy behind The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. But he started out writing the the indelible 1996 movie swingers and was right. like an indie guy who suddenly burst into the main like as a superstar blockbuster filmmaker but he made this one little movie and it's about social media it's about a guy whose career is destroyed because he has a tantrum that is filmed and then put on social media but the way Favreau plays it, instead of being an uh, actor or a director or something like that, it's a chef. It's a celebrity right. chef right. in Hollywood. And he has a fit, and that's the end. His 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 restaurant closes down, and he like has to start again, and he starts a food truck. And it is really, really good. It's like the first movie about cancel culture ever made. And it's very strong, very funny, very vivid, very real, and, and really captures something about the nature of people who lose it on social media and That's how they're made to move. pay. 
Yeah. It's a great way. And it also fits to my unified theory of the age of blunder, because I remember talking to somebody who's very good friends with John Favreau, who knows him very, very well, um, a major figure in show business. And I just seen Chef and I'm like, God, I love it. Please tell him. I don't I've never met John Favreau. Please tell him how much I love that movie. And it's not just because I love cooking and food. I just loved it. It was great. And he looked at me like, are you really? Are you serious? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's great. He goes, it breaks every story rule there is. The screenplay is completely unstructured. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't notice. I, like, I enjoyed it. I like the scenes and the funny things people said in the movie. Like Jerry Lewis, I'm sorry, I like the movie. Um, but his disdain for it was because it just didn't conform to what you know what we know is the uh, uh, formula for a hit movie. If a hit movie, if a movie doesn't have those things, it can't be a hit. The story is very sweet, but it, yeah, it doesn't conform to the, I mean, it's just, it's kind of a nice, fun character study with yeah. a shaggy dog story that you'll just love. And it's, and his performance is really good. And it's very sweet and um, makes you hungry. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> yes. a great picture. All right. Well, so we did end on a high note. That's that's, that's fantastic. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I, I I bet Jonah will be back with us, and and therefore we yes. will, we have a a, twi- a podcast that is twice as good, even though he's only one third <laughs> yeah. uh, of the three team. times as good. So, all right, he's so we'll the crooked appraiser that we need to make the whole system work. <laughs> okay. Right. See you soon. Yeah. See you, John. Ricochet. Join the conversation.